ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. EcoReport for WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Jamie Scholl of Resilience, a local food production, urban agriculture, food as medicine, and sustainable business practices. And now for your environmental reports. Here's something Bloomington should jump on. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has announced the $7 billion Solar for All grants competition to increase affordable solar energy access to millions of low-income households, a press release from the EPA said. As part of President Joe Biden's Investing in America plan, the availability of more residential solar will provide lower-cost energy while leveling the renewable energy access playing field and helping to mitigate the climate crisis. The Solar for All Grants competition was created by the Inflation Reduction Act's Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and will award as many as 60 grants to states, tribal governments, territories, municipalities, and eligible nonprofits to help expand solar investment in disadvantaged and low-income communities. The grant will be used to expand and create solar programs that provide technical assistance like workforce development and financing so that these communities can benefit from residential solar. Quote, at a time when people are struggling to make ends meet, all while dealing with the existential threat of climate change, we must make residential rooftop solar a reality for low-income and working families that need it most, end quote, said U.S. Senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, in the press release. This 7 billion residential solar program that I introduced and the EPA is administering is a major step in the right direction. The application deadline for the grants is September 26, 2023. A recording of the public briefing on the notice of funding opportunity will be available on the EPA's GGRF website. There will also be an informational webinar on the competition from 1 to 3 p.m. on July 12th. You can register here for the webinar, which will also post, be posted on the GGRF website. The website includes resources and tools for applicants. More information can be found at grants.gov. Fox 59 reports that America's honeybee hives just staggered through the second highest death rate on record, with beekeepers losing nearly half of their managed colonies, an annual bee survey found. But using costly and herculean measures to create new colonies, beekeepers are somehow keeping afloat. 
Thursday's University of Maryland and Auburn University survey found that even though 48% of colonies were lost in the year that ended April 1st, the number of United States honeybee colonies remained relatively stable. Honeybees are crucial to the food supply, pollinating more than 100 of the crops we eat, including nuts, vegetables, berries, citrus, and melons. Scientists said a combination of parasites, pesticides, starvation, and climate change keep causing large die-offs. Last year, 48% annual loss is up from the previous year's loss of 39%, and the 12-year average of 39.6%, but it's not as high as 2020-2021's 50.8% mortality rate, according to the survey funded and administered by the nonprofit research group Be Informed Partnership. Beekeepers told the surveying scientists that 21% loss over the winter is acceptable, and more than three-fifths of beekeepers surveyed said their losses were higher than that. Quote, This is a very troubling loss number when we barely manage sufficient colonies to meet pollination demands in the U.S., end quote, said former government bee scientist Jeff Pettis, president of the Global Beekeeper Association, Apamondia, that wasn't part of the study. It also highlights the hard work that beekeepers must do to rebuild their colony numbers each year. The overall bee colony population is relatively steady because commercial beekeepers split and restock their hives, finding or buying new queens or even starter packs for colonies, said University of Maryland bee researcher Natalie Steinhauer, the survey's lead author. It's an expensive and time-consuming process. The New York Times reports that a climate laggard in America's industrial heartland has a plan to change fast. Lawmakers in Michigan have long fought tough pollution controls, but the toll of flooding, lost crops, and damage to the Great Lakes appears to be changing minds. From toxic algal blooms in the Great Lakes to sewage pouring into Detroit basements to choking wildfire wildfire smoke that drifted south from Canada, Michigan has been contending with the fallout from climate change. Even the state's famed cherry trees have been struggling against rising temperatures, forcing some farmers to abandon the crop. But this state at the center of the American auto industry has also been a laggard when it comes to climate action, resistant to environmental regulations that could harm the manufacturing that has underpinned its economy for generations. That may change soon. Michigan is one of three states where Democrats won a blue trifecta last year, taking control of the governor's office and both legislative chambers, and they are seizing that opportunity to propose some of the most ambitious climate laws in the world The centerpiece is based on a 58-page MI Healthy Climate Plan offered by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. It would require Michigan to generate all of its electricity from solar, wind, or other carbon-free sources by 2035, eliminating the state's greenhouse pollution generated by coal and gas-fired power plants. The package would also toughen energy efficiency requirements for electric utilities and require a phase-out of coal-fired plants in the state by 2030. Coal, the dirtiest of fossil fuels, provided the largest share of electricity in Michigan 
followed by nuclear energy and natural gas in 2021, the most recent year for which data was compiled by the Energy Information Administration. Solar and wind generated about 11% of the state's electricity. In Indiana, 10% of power comes from wind solar. There is no big plan to expand these sources. The legislation is talking about nuclear reactors and carbon sequestration, which would permit the burning of coal of coal for a long time. Discussion of climate change is not allowed. Indiana is clearly a laggard in reducing carbon emissions. Inside Climate Change reports that Lake Erie will face more stormwater runoff, increased erosion and changes in both water levels and quality as climate change continues. Projects to mitigate those impacts range from restoring a wetland to deploying a plastic scavenging drone named Pixie and more. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced plans this spring to fund nearly 150 projects, including four in Ohio. The $8.2 million for those four projects is just a tiny part of almost $6 billion authorized over the next few years for NOAA's climate-related programs under the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act. Yet the projects provide creative approaches to cleanup, conservation, and restoration. Quote, it's important to take these actions now because of the pressures from climate change on our planet and also in looking at the pressures that brings specifically to our coastal areas where 40% of the population lives, end quote, said Joel Gore, chief of the stewardship division for NOAA's Office for Coastal Management. Ohio seems to be starting to right the ship after years of corruption and aversion to anything green. And now we go to Zero Rose and his conversation with Jamie Scholl about the benefits of permaculture gardens for human health and planetary balance, as well as the challenges posed by this year's weather, climate change, and local wildlife in terms of organic local urban agriculture. To learn more about Jamie's medicinal pr produce, her farm permaculture garden consultancy and resilience plants, please see www.resilience.com. We have with us today, Jamie Scholl of Resilience. She has been involved in uh, urban agriculture, advocacy for food policy, uh, for many years. She's had her uh, fingers in a lot of different things in different cities, but has shaped a lot in Bloomington. She was a board member of Bloomington Community Orchard and helped found the uh, Food Policy Council. She has coaching certifications in strategic intervention, nutrition, and health and well-being. And she's going to discuss with us today her a new business that she's formed to help facilitate and promote local urban agriculture as a, as a means to uh, beauty, peace, and health. We're going to talk about her sustainable practices and her uh, activities in shaping things like the Universal Develop Ordinance, Development Ordinance some years ago. She did an urban agriculture amendment on there. Um, I know that uh, some of your entry in, into the areas of plants and 
health, food as medicine and things has had to do with your own personal uh, health journey. So you were pre-diabetic and had uh, hypothyroid problems and that you've overcome them with uh, sort of food solutions. Can you uh, tell us about some of these health benefits of these things that you're growing and what you're trying to facilitate and do in your permaculture garden consultancy? Sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me on and the invitation to come on and talk about these things. My family has, a, on one side of the family, predisposition, genetic predisposition for uh, diabetes. So having studied that in part of the bioanth class at IU, I got to learn the mechanisms on how that functions. I'm thinking of little light switches on and off to do with um, lifestyle. So whenever I found that I was like that, outwardly, I didn't look as though I didn't have any of the other criteria, although I was having um, some health issues about that. And I'll tie that in to a little bit later. So I overcome, like, we often don't know we have a sugar addiction. I have to say that was one of the hardest things I ever did was trying to take out all sugars and really modify carbs. So, so difficult. With the thyroid issue, my sister had, that's on the other side of the family, my sister had said, why don't you check this out? I've, I have uh, Hashimoto's and uh, had just been diagnosed. So I went ahead and talked to my doctor. He's like, oh, you don't really have any pre-existing you know, uh, indicators. So I persisted and they're like, well, let's go ahead and do this. Then they found that there was something was a little off, did a little bit more testing. And it's like, well, we want to put you on Synthroid. And I do not want to be one that's reliant on medications at any point. You know, some people do need that. Not to say, you know, but for me, if I can figure something out, having had a background in working as support staff in a hospital and wellness center, like there's got to be something. So I did a lot of self-education in this and found that not only did I previously changed where I was no longer pre-diabetic and it had to do, most people don't realize this, stress, um, stress and getting better sleep, full night's sleep, but the stress really uh, had an effect on uh, diabetes, you know, pre-diabetes. And then with the thyroid, at that time, we didn't have uh, things online. We we had a lot of things online, but our medical records at that point were not online. So I had to really be an advocate for myself to get those mailed to me so I could actually see them rather than someone on the phone telling me that this this number and this and this and this are, are all are all within normal limits. Having done things like take my own body temperature throughout the day and know that it runs lower than the average. That's the thing. This These are averages. It doesn't fit everyone. That I knew from that perspective and having worked with some doctors and medical professionals in the past, I wasn't intimidated by what they knew or didn't know. So I got that information and saw that my iodine level was within normal limits, but it was only one point within that normal limits, which might have been not normal for me. 
So I started looking at that, making other dietary changes and, you know, looking at the lifestyle again. And so would modify these different things. I did see a nutritionist push for that, although she had never worked with anyone who was trying to prevent this only after someone had been on Synthroid. So she handed me a study that was about children. And I was never a big dairy person. I went back on to dairy and then developed allergies. So even to this day, I cannot drink or eat anything made with cow's milk. Although sheep, goat, those are fine. And of course, I do the other things, soy, oat, you know, other types of alternative milk products. Do you have a couple of gardens going on? Yeah, I'm I'm in a number of gardens right now, and I sell plants and doing research into certain plants with um, specific health benefits. Is yeah. that like a you have a food forest going on, or is that in the works? In my own property, I do have a native food forest around the black walnut tree. So native food forests can include the black walnut, persimmon, pawpaw. Uh, black raspberry, and a number of other types of plants that a lot of people consider black walnuts not to be amenable to food producing. But if you choose your plants and and look beyond the annuals, but uh, alliums grow fine around it. I think you can grow green beans, but I mostly stick with uh, perennials. And do you think the uh, Bloomington Community Orchard you helped uh, start up has uh... Uh, culminated well? Yeah, I was just there um, a few days ago and talked with some people who were there on July 4th. And um, yeah, it's it's a great community project and uh, is a great learning, uh, a place for learning and connecting with others. These are things that are not uh, funded by pharmaceutical companies. These are called nutraceuticals. And because lycopene does not have that benefit in a capsule form, and it cannot be uh, really utilized in that way, unlike some other things, that the only way to get this benefit is from the actual food. So growing and processing locally, which I'll lead into the urban agriculture with us, is incredibly important. And these, uh, one of the tomatoes I'll probably have a lot to sell, uh, I'm hoping, if all goes well, <clears throat> this summer is Moonglow. Doesn't have the highest tetracyclic lycopene value, but it does. it is a taste, uh, taste test winner, and it's, it's very tasty. Now, for the urban agriculture and why it's it's important to health and growing has a few components. And one of them is that given that these things are best utilized locally and fresh off the vine and do not travel well uh, in trucks or in production, they will not be... Um, grown by a large-scale grower, they they can't be processed anyway for the tangerine tomatoes. And they're not going to be grown in the largest volumes because the, the plant does not produce that larger volume. 
and it just doesn't ship as well. So this must be, this is a nutraceutical that must be grown locally, whether it's in someone's backyard in a five gallon bucket at a, at a local grower to get that health benefit that is not available anywhere else. So that is incredibly important when you're considering urban agriculture. Yes, beauty is important. Beauty is important to the aesthetic. It's important to our you know, psyche, our philosophy. We feel better, um, even like in uh, negative spaces, such as I'll use the term ghetto, which they've seen. There are studies that show that gardens and green spaces help mental health. There is that. There's a physical health with getting your hands actually in the soil. That's also been studied and that's there. Um, but in regards to actually for the food production, those with the lowest, uh, you know, the challenges with positive health outcomes and not getting diseases and having fresh foods are low income. Now, why we have a, a huge issue in this community with deer. They are eating things, and I've been growing here for a long time. They are eating things, not just in my yard, but in other locations that they have never eaten before. We have an overpopulation problem. And I like the deer. I have one doe that she grazes as I'm picking black raspberries. I'm just like, do not eat this, please. However, my income level at this point, especially of starting a business, is not high. And if I'm fencing them out, well, that's a, that's a cost. That's hitting low-income people who need this food the most. I, wouldn't say, I shouldn't say the most. It is going to have the greatest benefit, likely, likely, with those populations who cannot fence out. And then when you fence that out, you're fencing out possibly all these other creatures in the wildlife. We have, you know, we have raccoons and possums, and I, I see them here, skunks. And we can integrate in that, or we can try to block all of that out. So it's not that I am a deer hater, obviously not. I've rescued them. I rescue many animals, rabbits included, even though they like eating my lettuces and a number of other things. But we're out of balance. And that's part of well-being is being in balance. So our community is out of balance. And how do we get into balance? We are, you know, humans are part of the food chain. We're not just observing it. And not everyone will agree that we need, you know, I know there have been discussions before and a whole task force, the deer task force of addressing this issue. And it's like, no deer, deer kills, no deer, deer kills. But then we're harming our citizens by not managing this. However it gets managed, that's how it would best be managed. Um, and my philosophies are more in line with uh, Native peoples. And, you know, if I can, and I have butchered things myself, say a prayer for that, thank the creature for, for giving its life, um, and be truly thankful, not just getting some hamburgers or whatever from the store and throwing them out as part of a celebration.
in nature. This is Juliana Daly. Today's in nature segment is about the cerulean warbler. The cerulean warbler is a small songbird of the warbler family, only about 4.3 inches. Adult males have pale cerulean blue and white underparts with a black necklace around the breast and black streaks on the back and flanks. The population is dropping faster than any other warbler species in the United States. The population decline is 74% since 1966. The cerulean warbler winters in South America and migrates north in the summer. It breeds in forests with tall deciduous trees and open understory, such as wet bottomlands and dry slopes. They can be found in Indiana. The cerulean warbler feeds primarily on insects and nests in trees using bark fibers, grass stems, and hair bound together with spider webs. They lay one to five eggs that are grayish to greenish white with brown speckles. That's the cerulean warbler. You've been listening to In Nature. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly, and I am Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Enjoy insect black lighting at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, July 8th from 8 to 9.30 p.m., Sit under the stars and watch insects come to the glowing canvas. You will learn about black lining and insects. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Challenge yourself on a 10.8-mile trail challenge with a group hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, July 8th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. The naturalist will guide your group on trails 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, and the Stagecoach Trail. Bring water and lunch. Explore Monroe Lake with a paddling trip at the Crooked Creek State Recreation Area on Tuesday, July 11th, beginning at 9 a.m. These paddling trips allow you to explore the quieter side of Monroe Lake. Find your new favorite place. Sign up at bit.ly slash explore hyphen July 11 hyphen 2023. Learn about fascinating fossils at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Thursday, July 13th from 6 to 7.45 p.m. The wandering naturalist will teach you about some of the fossils that can be found around the lake. Enjoy a glow-in-the-dark paddle at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, July 15th from 9.30 to 11 p.m. 
You will have glow sticks to illuminate your boat and paddle as you learn about nocturnal wildlife. You should have some paddling experience. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhushki Snyder. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana compiled Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhushki Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You know, I read these. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org.